because she talks about such dicey topics that it's so easy to fall into cliches. I mean, the majority of her poems are about feelings, about grief and death and pain and things that are so easy to mess up because you end up resorting to a cliche or just describing the feeling with emotional language. And she uses imagery to describe a feeling and does it well, does it perfectly. I think especially with what she's trying to communicate, you know, she's dropping down into this abyss and then there's this this end, she hits the rock bottom. You're expecting her to continue to fall and maybe she talks about, oh, the beauty of the way, you know, the beauty of the fall, but she doesn't. She's like, I finished knowing right then, Then, right then and there. Hi everyone, in today's class you'll hear a discussion between me and April and Niels about the poetry of Emily Dickinson. And at the end of this recording I'll give you an optional and just for fun writing prompt to help you focus on compression in poetry. Emily Dickinson is one of those poets whose letters are at times almost just as good as the poetry. And today's quote of the day comes from one of these letters. It's a quote I think about a lot and share a lot with students. It's from a letter that Emily Dickinson addresses to uh, Thomas Higginson, who is, among other things, a literary critic and editor that she falls into correspondence with. This letter is dated 15th of April, 1862. Dickinson has clearly sent Thomas Higginson some poems of hers and is asking you know, for an outside reader. And this is what she says. Mr. Higginson, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? The mind is so near itself, it cannot see distinctly, and I have none to ask. Should you think it breathed, and had you the leisure to tell me, I should feel quick gratitude. This is only the beginning of the letter, but the part I wanted to single out is, when Dickinson says, the mind is so near itself, it cannot see. I think this is so illuminating for several reasons. First of all, even the greatest poets need outside readers. Even the greatest poets don't always know what they're doing. This corroborates things we've heard from Yeats and other poets regarding the importance of mystery and surprise and experimentation. If Emily Dickinson knew how to write a masterpiece every single time, then every single one of her poems would be as good as every every other one of her poems, but this isn't the case. I find this immensely reassuring, that if the writing process is full of uncertainty and mystery, for the greatest poets, we should not feel like we're doing it wrong when we are overwhelmed with uncertainty and mysteries in our own writing. This little quote, the mind is so near itself it cannot see, also justifies the reason for creative writing workshops. We all need outside readers need someone to tell them which leads to follow and which to abandon. So think about this quote the next time that you're uncertain about a poem. You're in extremely good company. And I would highly encourage everyone listening to seek out two or three or four fellow writers who aspire to the same kind of writing that you do and whose responses you especially value and who you can trust and initiate correspondences with them to share work. And for more about Emily Dickinson and some of her fantastic poetry, let's go into that chat with me and April and Niels.
Can you now hear and see me? Yes. Uh, it's great to see both of you. Uh, how are you both doing? I'm doing good. Fantastic. Very good. That's good. I hope that you mean it. It's been a wild and crazy semester. And yeah, then we had this fire over the weekend. So it's like a conspiracy of weirdness and catastrophes. Definitely. We were watching yesterday, we were watching them drop that red. I don't know what that red stuff is. Did either of you see that? Mm -mm. These planes were passing. This was probably like, I don't know how long they were doing this for. We were watching it at probably two o'clock in the afternoon. These planes making low passes for like an hour, just dropping all this red, you know, I don't know what it is. Deterrent, fire deterrent. The fires in California, the fires here. I mean, here in the Wasatch Mountains, we've had how many little fires i say little you know in comparison to california but way too many too many fires um so i'll i'll just you know begin by asking you probably what your favorite poem in this book was and why this you would single it out as your favorite but i don't know who wants to go first doesn't really matter does somebody have a poem that they just simply adore and kind of must swoon over for a few minutes I've got, I really, I really enjoyed these poems. I have to say, I know like at the beginning, like I got, it was difficult for me to get into because I was like, wait, I have to like adjust to the style of the author. I know that's always a problem that I have with starting a new book. Cause like if I have just finished Pride and Prejudice and then I open up like Harry Potter, or Percy Jackson, I'm like, wait a second, wait a second, different century. So yeah. I think all my all the poems that I dog-eared or I underlined come in the last half of the book. But one of mine, it's so short, but I just love it so much. It's poem, um, how would you say that, like, do you say like 1,158? I read that Yeah, that's poem. good. And it's so short, but I love it. It says, best witchcraft is geometry to the magician's mind. His ordinary acts are feats to thinking of mankind. <laughs> Because it's just, it's just so short and clever. And she's like, look, all this smoke. I feel like she went to the circus or something. And then she went home and wrote this poem. And she was like, it's just smoke and mirrors, guys. You know, like maybe she had, you know, maybe she like her friends were like, oh my gosh, did you see this? And she was yeah. like, you know, I saw the guy in the back, with like <laughs> this, the smoke and the shadows. It's, it's not all that cool, guys. I just think it's so fun. It's, it's math, it's geometry, it's not magic. But it is, there is a kind of celebration. So there's, it's a wonderful paradox because you're absolutely right, April. On one hand, there's this wonderful debunking spirit in lots of her poems. She has this in her personality, this kind of impulse to debunk or peek behind the curtain or look at traditions or beliefs from a totally different perspective, from a totally different angle. She loves to debunk stuff. But in the process of debunking, wouldn't you say, sorry, I now feel like I'm feeding you the answer. Don't feel pressured to agree with me. But she makes geometry. She makes like, yeah, the magician, it's not, it is smoke and mirrors. But the process of smoke and mirrors is so interesting. Like if you set the mirror here and put this much smoke to a thinking mind, as she says in this poem, that's a kind of feat. Like how does a person invent a magic trick? So she celebrates... On one hand, she's debunking. Don't pay attention to the smoke in the mirrors. What the real miracle is, is the mind and the, the way that the mind can invent an illusion, you know, a total magic trick. So it's this paradox of debunking, but also reestablishing our awe in facts, you know, in reality. I think it's really lovely, beautiful. 
I, I definitely agree with you. Maybe your magic trick, like your card trick, isn't, it's not real. There's no magic, but you still have to learn how to do it. You know, you still yeah. have to learn the flips and, you know, hide the card in your sleeve. Like not everybody can do that. The, the work behind the curtain, you know, if you go to see a movie or a play, I think everything that goes behind the scenes, you know, yeah. the, the editing, the musical score, all that combined, I think is just as marvelous as the illusion that they've yeah. created itself. Your poem, your pick reminds me of uh, her poem, 185. This is on page seven. This poem might even be more provocative. Um, so this is another short little poem, and it's, I think, on a similar topic. Faith is a fine invention when gentlemen can see, but microscopes are prudent in an emergency. <laughs> I also laughed at that one. Yeah, so she has this very cheeky, again, wonderful spirit of debunking, but yeah, I don't know. If, yeah, irreverence. She's kind of an irreverent streak in her. Uh, Niels, what would your pick for favorite poem be? <coughs> Far too many. I think I'd choose probably 561. If I had to pick a favorite, favorite. 561. And as we're all turning there, you know, this is as good a place as any to just tell people listening. This is goes without saying, maybe, but all these numbers, these are not her numbers, you know. She lived a very solitary life. And sorry, Niels, we've gone down a tangent, but she lived a very solitary life and in certain years, extremely solitary, not leaving her bedroom. And she only published maybe one or two poems in her lifetime. And she kept all of her other poems. So she wrote more than 1700 poems and she would write them and sew them together by hand into little booklets that she called that, that scholars now call fascicles. And lots of these booklets she kept in like dresser drawers or under her bed. And they were just discovered after her death. Imagine, you know, just imagine this treasure trove, some of the best poetry ever written ever by any human, uh, you know, like stuffed in this bedroom in Amherst, Massachusetts. Remarkable. So these numbers, they didn't have titles. The poems don't have titles. And the numbers were given after the fact by editors and scholars who have to somehow organize them. And they're kind of organized roughly chronologically. So April, maybe it could be, again, there, there could be many reasons why you liked the poems in the latter half of the book more. One reason could be that we're getting a more mature poet, you know? Anyway, so Niels, who should read five poem 561? I do not have the poet voice, but I wouldn't mind trying. <laughs> Go for it. No, don't, don't. Absence of poet voice is good. So yeah, read away. All right. <clears throat> I measure every grief I meet with narrow probing eyes. I wonder if it weighs like mine or has an easier size. I wonder if they bore it long or did it just begin? I could not tell the date of mine. It feels so old a pain. I wonder if it hurts to live and if they have to try and whether could they choose between it would not be to die. I note that some gone patient long at length renew their smile, an imitation of a light that has so little oil. I wonder if when years have piled some thousands on the harm that hurt them early, such a lapse could give them any balm. Or would they go on aching still through centuries of nerve, enlightened to a larger pain in contrast with the love? The grieved are many, I'm told. There is the various cause. Death is but one and comes but once, and only nails the eyes. 
There's grief of want and grief of cold, a sort they call despair. There's banishment from native eyes in sight of native air. And though I may not guess the kind correctly, yet to me, a piercing comfort it affords in passing Calvary. To note the fashions of the cross and how they're mostly worn, still fascinated to presume that some are like my own. So, Niels, what's what stood out to you the most about this? You know, I think I appreciate the most the integrity of the emotion. I think too often with poems about grief and pain, it's easy to kind of get sucked into the mournful, tragic loss of it all. And not, not that that's necessarily not an honest emotion either. Just I think I value hers more because it seems to come from a, a place that that I can relate to in a greater way. It's it's almost it's a poem that comes across almost as embarrassing in a way. She's comparing griefs. <laughs> She's comparing her grief to someone else's, and that is a little bit uh, shocking. <laughs> and not the reaction you typically would expect somebody who is in mourning to exhibit. But it's honest. It's something that we do all the time. It's something that I find myself doing all the time about, oh, wow, I think I did worse on that than they did. So I must be hurting more than they did. And I think Emily Dickinson nails it in the sense of how she almost relates to other people based on their grief. And I think that, of course, the ending of the poem ends on such a more optimistic note, something that I also appreciated because it it changes this embarrassing form of comparison grief to a to a comforting form where she feels comfort and almost sympathetic to these people when she passes calvary she feels this piercing comfort and how she is fascinated to see that some people have griefs like her own and i also think that's an honest thing as well so that's why i appreciate it a lot this is great. So honesty, this has come up in previous chats. I can't remember exactly where, but it's many of our favorite authors exhibit this Im- immensely. Don't be afraid to say the truth, no matter how, as you say, Niels, embarrassing or awkward or vulnerable or ugly it might seem, you know, this is good. This this has some, it's quite a different poem than the one April chose, but it does have this thing in common where by the time the poem is over, we see grief from a totally different perspective, right? It's bad at the beginning, really bad at the beginning. But then slowly it revolves and we see kind of a, a side of it that, yeah, as you say, Neil's like, oh yeah, some are like my own. And this is a kind of universalizing aspect of humanity. And it's something that binds us together and therefore can be this weird source of comfort. So people listening who want to write poetry, tell the truth, subvert as a, so let's go in order debunk or subvert or surprise, you know, as April says, tell the truth and turn, you know, make sure that the poem kind of goes somewhere at the end that it didn't start at. I don't know. Anything else to add to this list? I think don't be afraid to communicate with experiences and not words, you know, because like sometimes I feel like in everyday conversation, people are talking, 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 but like there's not, I don't know, collateral or like there's not something behind what they're saying. They're just saying it because they're like, oh, I should say this instead of, oh, I'm comforting you because I have felt the same thing, you know? So I guess right from experience. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, it's very, this will be edited out. I'm going to stare pensively out my window for 10 seconds. <laughs> very provocative. Yeah, it's a very thought-provoking thing to say, April, because right from experience, this is absolutely true. It's complicated, though, though, because, okay, let's just look at this first stanza again. I measure every grief I meet with narrow probing eyes. I wonder if it weighs like mine or has an easier size. Now, we never know what happened to her, what what it caused this grief. She never tells us, oh, this is a poem about my cousin dying, or this is a poem about unrequited love. We, what is the grief? What is the experience? So this is a question I don't know the answer to. I think it's a pretty hard question. You're absolutely right, April, that we get the sense that this is a poem of immense urgency. Maybe this is what you meant, Niels, when you said that she's true to the emotion. Like this is a poem that you can tell isn't just to write a poem. It's more, it feels like more than an exercise. She's coming to the page with some sincere wound, right? Mm -hmm. So right out of some kind of sincere wound, but why doesn't she tell us what the wound is? And so th th it's a two-parter two-parter hard question. Why doesn't she tell us what the wound is? And why doesn't that make the poem bad? Would the poem be better if we knew what sparked this grief? I think her topic of choice with this poem, the fact that she's comparing grief, kind of maybe speaks to that question a little bit. You, you don't, I mean, when you look at somebody, you don't know what they're going through. You don't know the griefs that they carry. Right. In the same way that we probably don't know what she's carrying for this poem. So I think that's probably one answer to your question. Another might be that it's not necessary for the poem. Her goal, I suppose, with this poem was not to expound her own troubles, but right. more to focus on other people's griefs and how they relate to her own. And I think she accomplishes that very well. And she doesn't need to explain her own grief to accomplish that. Yeah, I love that. I don't know. Any thoughts, April? Uh, yeah, I think I think maybe one of the reasons why she might not have included the grief is because, like, I know for me, I have, like, a journal that I write in about my life. It's like, I ate Cheerios this morning, <laughs> you know, and that's, it's, it's kind of just like a sequence of events. Yeah. And then I have another journal that kind of has the more um, poetic thoughts or the things, the discourses of my life, you know, like, the, the things that I've been thinking or the, the thoughts that I have because of the experience that I have. And I don't usually say, oh, my roommate um, threw a sock at me and I'm mad at her. Yeah. You know, it's just, <laughs> just, it's just writing about how I'm mad. And so I feel like what she did is like, maybe she had a place that she also wrote what happened and she's just coming and she's writing a poem because she feels like that's the better place to express what she's feeling, yeah. you know? And I guess putting the event in there maybe would, I guess, narrow the perspective. If you listen to popular pop music, like the romance stuff, it's like love songs, oh, I love you. You know, if like the artist says the person's name, it just kind of like goes out the window for everybody else. You're listening to a song about Mary loving John and not Mary loving this guy that could be you, you yeah. know? It's a weird paradox. Again, I don't know this has become the accidental theme of our discussion, paradox, but for most of the semester, we've been talking, have we not, about the importance of 
particular, specific, concrete detail. Yeah, this is something David Foster Wallace did so well, Nabokov, uh, Hemingway, or et cetera, Seamus Heaney, you know, who we just talked about. Um, Seamus Heaney, you know, gave us a poem in contrast in which he tells us about the death of his little brother. Very particularized poem. So I don't want to discount that mode. You know, you can get super specific and it's a tried and true method, you know? Dickinson proves though that there are other methods. And I think you're both right to say she wants to, her goal, you know, this is, was Niels's point. She, her goal is to universalize human experience. So if, in, in this kind of poem, it doesn't matter what caused the grief. She tells you, I have a grief. And we think, oh, so, you know, I have those too in my life. Now we have this common bond. Let's talk about it. And the particulars don't necessarily matter. I will, however, say that the, this poem is full of particulars. I mean, how wonderful are these stanzas like? I wonder if when years have piled some thousands on the harm that hurt them early, such a lapse could give them any balm, right? So she's concretizing, she's using concrete language to talk about abstract ideas or events, like does, does time heal all wounds? Instead of using that cliche, she makes you picture this tiny grief buried under this mountain of years. And will those years smother it or will it still be alive, you know, in the next stanza? Or will they go on aching? This is even better. Or will they go on aching still through centuries of nerve, enlightened to a larger pain in contrast with the love? So suddenly in my mind, I have this image of this giant mountain of time, inside of which is a vein like, like, a precious metal or something like a vein of gold that is a nerve, you know, that goes through our bodies. Will this vein like a nerve still ache no matter how many, no matter how big this mountain of time gets. So she doesn't particularize the grief, but she is still appealing to the senses is what I would say. I think she does that with the majority of her poems, especially because she talks about such dicey topics that it's so easy to fall into cliches. I mean, the majority of her poems are about feelings, about grief and death and pain and things that are so easy to mess up because you end up resorting to a cliche or just describing the feeling with, you know, emotional language. And she uses imagery, like you said, yeah. abstract imagery as well to describe a feeling and does it well, does it perfectly and captures it better than I think I ever could with prosaic language. <laughs> This is so true. It, I don't I mean, maybe she consciously or subconsciously knows that her terrain, yeah, her subject matter, as you say, what are her favorite topics? Fear, grief, faith, doubt, God. Death. Death, indeed. How could I forget? What else? Madness, love. Madness, love, beauty. They're all big. People can't see this, but my hands are like making this giant sort of like big. They couldn't get bigger. The biggest topics. They're all abstractions. Yeah. So she's constantly, Niels, you're absolutely right. The risk of an abstraction is that the poem has is not grounded. The poem has no nothing to hold on to. It floats off into the ether and no reader will care. And so to mitigate against that risk, she's constantly tying it to, I mean, for example. Well, I mean, just like any poem is a great example, but we won't read all of this poem. It's one of her, it's one of her most famous. 
my life had stood a loaded gun. So this is page 55, it's poem 754. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners till the day the owner passed, identified and carried me away. And now we roam the sovereign woods and now we hunt the doe. And every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. <laughs> such a, it's such a crazy thing to say. How wonderful is this? Like the most shocking metaphor I've ever heard. I am, I am like a loaded gun that for a long time just sat unused in the, in the corner. Let's, let's make the poem worse. For, let's spend 30 seconds making this poem worse by talking about what this is a metaphor of. My life is like a loaded gun. She doesn't say like. I've now turned a metaphor into a simile. Sorry. What is she telling us about her life? That there's potential. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one great answer. I mean, there could be others. I don't know. It's one of those metaphors that seems kind of bottomless. But that's certainly, yeah, a, a big part of this metaphor that I have, I have potential. I have unused energy. I have unused power. Mm -hmm. I'm strong, but no one knows it or, or no one... Something maybe only Emily Dickinson could like say authoritatively. Yeah, it's kind of perfect for her life. But she doesn't say that. She doesn't say, I am a secret genius or I am full of unused energy. She makes it concrete and she makes us see something, hear something. How wonderful is this? I speak for him. You know, my owner passed. Now he picks me up and now I get to talk for him. And every time I talk, the mountains echo. So me and the mountains have this dialogue. It's like so wonderful. So wonderful. But I'm thinking of other poems. Let's kind of do what the beginning of Niels's did. I think there's I felt a funeral in my brain. That's a good one. Or totally. couples at your soul. Both we really should ones. talk about that. I want to kind of talk for a while about that poem. So let's not turn there yet. But um, well, like for example, this is on page 38. Poem 532, I tried to think a lonelier thing than any I had seen. Some polar expiation, an omen in the bone of death's tremendous nearness. She has this wonderful way of starting poems that immediately make you want to keep reading. Don't you agree? Yeah. I've always felt like in all of her poems, like the first stand is so strong. And I'm like, so yes, yeah. this is so good. And then I just get completely pulled in. And it doesn't matter if like she starts it and she's talking about death and funerals. And then, I don't know, she could talk about bunnies and I'd still be there reading it. Yeah. You know? She knows, this is great, April. She knows that readers' lives are busy and she has to like get right to it, like get to the point. And make the first stanza, I hate this metaphor of the hook, you know, it's hard to avoid. Hook your reader with your first stanza, you know. I tried to think a lonelier, lonelier thing than I had ever seen. That's so great. And then just flip the one page earlier in the book. This is poem 512. The soul has bandaged moments when too appalled to, to stir, she feels some ghastly fright come up and stop to look at her. It's another great example. I love this uh, poem, poem 510 on page 35. Something has happened, right? It was not death for I stood up and all the dead lie down. It was not night for all the bells put out their tongues for noon. 
It was not frost, for on my flesh I felt Sirocco's crawl. Sirocco is this warm wind, yeah? Not fire, for just my marble feet could keep a chancel cool. And yet it tasted like them all, the figures I have seen, set orderly for burial, reminded me of mine. So she talks, you could add to this list of topics, like things that can't be described in language. That's another one of her favorite topics. Something happened to me. I wasn't dead. I wasn't cold. It wasn't darkness. It wasn't night. I was experiencing some weird, horrible thing. I don't know what to call it, but I'll just go through a list of what it wasn't. And maybe my reader will get it through some kind of negative silhouette. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Should we talk about, um, I felt the funeral in my brain. I want to talk about this poem. It has many great things uh, in its favor. This is poem 280, page 12. I really don't want to do all the talking, so maybe I'll read it and I'll plant this question in your minds and pick and, and you can answer it when I'm done reading it. My question is, what would we have to say about music in these poems? Um, we've talked so far about how she's subversive and surprising and honest and she doesn't let you in on her secret life. She doesn't let you in on the particulars of her life. Like April, I love these two sets of books that you're keeping. There's there's the what happened in my life, but then there's the what happened in my soul, you know? And the Dickinson poem is what happened in my soul, not what happened in my life. But even though most of her poems are about emotions and feelings, and Neil's, you're also right to say, very risky territory because it's kind of flooded in cliches. She still concretizes what happens in her soul with physical details or metaphors. I now want to talk about music. She's a very distinct musical style. And yeah, I guess that's the question. It's an open-ended question. How would you describe her musical style? What musical effects is she capable of? Do you like these musical effects? Um, yeah, let's just leave it at that. And so I'll ask you what you think after I read this poem. I think this is a good poem to, to ask this question about because it, it in part uses musical kind of metaphors. I felt a funeral in my brain and mourners to and fro kept treading, treading till it seemed that sense was breaking through. And when they all were seated, a service like a drum kept beating, beating till I thought my mind was going numb. And then I heard them lift a box and creak across my soul with those same boots of lead again, then space began to toll, as all the heavens were a bell, and being but an ear, and I and silence some strange race wrecked solitary here. And then a plank in reason broke, and I dropped down and down, and hit a world at every plunge, and finished knowing then. So music, what, what do her poems sound like? And yeah, what kind of sound effects do they have? And do you like these sounds? You know, funny enough, I'd actually thought about comparing Emily Dickinson to a conductor because I think she is a master at controlling your attention. Um, simply the way she structures her poems with capitalizing certain words and breaking the sentences in certain ways. And then of course her prolific use of the M dash she captures your attention and threads it through her poems so masterfully. She makes you switch from moment to moment 
notes and focus on different things throughout her entire poem. And it is like a song. It is like, it, it, I mean, the only, the closest thing I could think of was how you are listening to a symphony or a song and you hear a jarring note and your mm-hmm. attention is immediately drawn to that note <laughs> much more than any of the other notes in that same sequence. And that's what she's doing. She rhymes when she's not supposed to, and she doesn't when she's supposed to. And she breaks her sentences when she's not supposed to and when she's supposed to as well, just to keep you off your guard. And I think these jarring notes in that sequence of a poem makes it so she moves your attention. I think, for example, here, things like how she repeats the word treading to give you another emphasis of the monotony of it or how she talks about the sense being bro- breaking through and this idea of the foundation of a mind being broken and, and, and the plank in reason breaking. And then she drops down and down, keeping you on your toes about this imagery she's using. I just think it's fascinating and wonderful. It's so great. Yeah. April. Um, yeah. I think, I think maybe not conductor is the right word, but a composer because she, she so knows what she's doing. She's not, She's not making mistakes when she when she talks about um, all the heavens were a bell. You know, that's not that's not something that she's just like, oh, the word bell would go really nice here. You know, right. she's definitely doing all this on purpose. And I was I was reading this along with you, and I was thinking it of like writing a symphony. You know, and when she says um, kept treading, treading, there's a music. I'm kind of a music geek, too. Sorry. Um, there's this musical notation called the tenuto. And it's and what it basically means. It's like a, it's like a massage. It's an emphasis. Right. It's an wow. accent. And so I read that and I was like, oh, it's such a tenuto because she's making it. She's drawing your attention. She's making sure that you didn't miss it, you know, and then. When she says, I heard them, you know, lift a box and creak across my soul. That's another type of accent, right? Um, that might have been a forzando, right? Which is a punch and then a back away and then you crescendo. And so I was just thinking of all of her words in terms of music. And I was mm. just, and I could recognize kind of like, this is, this is this kind of accent. This is a crescendo. You know, I could hear the bells in the back of the orchestra, you mm. know, and I just, I, I thought that was really cool. This is so great. I'm so glad that I'm, none of this would ever occur to me. Both of you have said such great things. Um, that's why these are absolutely better as dialogues. So yeah, I, I don't want to spend like twice as long just repeating what you both so wonderfully and economically said, but so, several of these points I think deserve emphasis. Um, Niels, there is this, what was the word that you used off? Jarring, use the word jarring totally jarring it's the perfect word i think i mean there's lots jarring about her poems the m dashes the capitals the fact that the the punctuation the the rules of punctuation kind of go out the window and we never quite know what part of a sentence we're in when when a sentence is over or when another one has started so she's keeping us on our toes then rhyme though is maybe for me one of the most jarring aspects of her poems she rhymes more or less um, some of them are perfect rhymes. Some of them are slant rhymes. And it's the moment of slant rhyme that I think, I mean, for example, this is a poem in which there's lots, there's enough perfect rhyme for me to hear a song very loud and clear. Creak across my soul, then space begins to toll, being but an ear, wrecked solitary here. The song, if this is a composer, right? 
It's like, look at these perfect harmonies, look at these perfect harmonies. I'm setting up a pattern of perfect harmonies. But then the poem ends, and then a plank in reason broke, and I dropped down and down and hit a world at every plunge and finished knowing then. And the poem ends on this stumble of off rhyme. If a pattern of perfect rhyme has been set up, and then the poem ends with this very jarring, great word, Niels, off rhyme. Why? I, I don't have an answer. Why? I mean, she can, she can rhyme. So it's not because she can't rhyme with down. I don't know what rhymes with down. So I'll just put then. No, this is, as April, you said, she's doing these, she, this is all for a reason, right? So why as a poet would you jar the reader with such a, I mean, it's not quite as bad as nails on a chalkboard, but it is like, oh, wait, that's off. Why would you do that? I think especially with what she's trying to communicate, you know, she's dropping down into this abyss and then there's this, this end, she hits the rock bottom, right? Yeah. And you're expecting, you're expecting her to continue to fall. And maybe she talks about, oh, the beauty of the way, you know, the beauty of the fall, but she doesn't. She's like, I finished yeah. knowing right then, then right yeah. then and there. And like with the musical um, metaphor that we're going with, I feel like at this moment, it would be like when the conductor like just puts his hands down and the orchestra just stops playing and like <laughs> looking at each other and like, yeah, are, are we going? Are we stopping? Is this like a rest stop or something? Is a break, you know? And I, so I feel like how sudden and startling it is really, you know, she says, and finish knowing, you know, I'm not thinking anymore right now. That's great. It stops. So it mirrors, it very often mirrors the content of the poem, right? So she's, this is a plunge out of reason, a plank in reason broken. She's now kind of falling out of reason. And she wants the music of the poem to feel, yeah, irrational somehow or outside of reason. I don't know. Any other thoughts, Niels, about this poem or any other musical aspects? Even the way she ends the poem with how to complete sentence you you it's a hiccup it's a moment where you and finish knowing then what <laughs> then what and you're left on this cliffhanger almost which is this awful analogy but this idea that it's an unfinished poem and i think I it's it. a being unfinished makes it a more beautiful poem every time you're absolutely right every time i read this i mean i i don't literally but actually literally the first few times i did read it i kept want like this, there must be more stanzas that were lost or something. It feels so abrupt. But again, it is this abruptness that she wants to recreate. There was something in her brain. This is like, it wasn't death. It wasn't night. It wasn't sleep. She doesn't know what it was. It was a funeral in her brain. It, it, this is like April's two notebooks. I don't want to know if this was a migraine, you know, like April 13th, 1864, had bad migraine today, wrote a poem about it in which I compared it to a funeral. If that journal entry ever gets uncovered by Emily Dickinson, I will die a minor death on the inside. Something wonderfully mysterious will be lost, right? I don't want this poem to be about one event or one small thing, you know, that's identifiable in the schedule of a day. It's like this grand existential fall, you know, this grand existential fall. And so she wants the poem to be jarring, disruptive, hiccupy. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I want to talk about, yeah, shocking metaphors, images. Maybe we have, there's all kinds. I mean, like, for example, the hoofs of the clock. That's pretty great. There is a blossom in the brain. We could add brain to our list of, she's a very brain obsessed writer. She loves brains. 
just great images safe in their alabaster chambers is a great image i think oh i really want to talk about this certain slant of light poem can we do that happily it's right above uh the funeral in my brain poem why do i want to talk about this i just think it's so beautiful i don't need a better reason do i i think it's so beautiful poem 258 i always think of utah when i read this poem i don't think she ever visited utah i just think light is different in utah it's different than nobody cares what I'm saying right now. Tangent <laughs> inside tangent. Sorry, people. I'm from Canada and light there is, you know, bright and stuff. It's light, but I don't know. In Utah, light is so different. Think about, um, you know, 4.30 p.m. in December, looking at the Wasatch Mountains, you know, in the mountains is a special place. Anyway, here we go. There's a certain slant of light winter afternoons and you immediately think i promise i won't interrupt the poem you may think oh this is going to be a poem about beautiful soft things you know and how wonderful they are no it isn't there's a certain slant of light winter afternoons that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes i want now both of you to tell me why this is so good <laughs> Just to avoid me doing all the talking. Why is this so good? It feels heavy. When she says slant of light, you know, light is like, it doesn't have weight, but the way she says oppresses yeah. a heft of cathedral tunes. And then you, your mind interestingly just goes into a church. And, you know, I've been to cathedrals in Europe and like they're so big and massive and you just feel the weight, even just walking on the, you know, on the floor, you can feel yeah. the weight of the pillars next to you. And if the organ's play, playing, it just like echoes and you feel like there's a weight to the sound. And I, I don't know, it feels heavy. It is, um, I mean, slant. So she's priming us because like, oh no, this light's going to fall over and like fall on us. So light is slanting in this heavy way that oppresses, there is a certain slant of light winter afternoons that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. I can't really put my finger on it, but there is something about the meter that oppresses like the heft, maybe it's the monosyllables there of cathedral tunes. Of course, the stone imagery makes it sound heavy. I don't know, what would you say, Niels? If someone asked you, why is that stanza so good? I think once again, it's because of its shockingness. I mean, it's so easy to say light and prettiness and especially winter afternoons and how it glistens on the snow or something along those lines but that's right that oppresses it's shocking it's disturbing and it, it and yet it becomes more real for it i'm not taken to this wintry afternoon with sparkly silver snow i'm taken to this almost awful sense of light above me and i would it, it weighs on me and it hurts me and I think later in the poem, she goes on to describe a little bit of that pain, but just the way she uses light in the first stanza already creates this oppressive tone that reverses what I was originally intending. And that reversal is what keeps the poem interesting and engaging. Great reversal. So surprise and reversal. I'll now just read to the end of the poem and we won't, we, let's not comment heavily because there's two more things I want to do, but here we go. There's a certain slant of light winter afternoons that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Also, I can't help it. Sorry. <laughs> There's a kind of synesthesia. So part of the reversal, it's not just that she, I mean, it's largely this, that she's reversing our expectations, but uh, she's comparing light to stone. This light 
the certain angle that light comes in in winter. It has to be winter afternoons. She's just such a genius. It's not summer afternoons or summer evenings. You both know what she means, don't you? That like December 4.30, there's something about the light that you think it's too early for dusk. The light is especially golden, which technically is beautiful, but it's making me feel bad. You know what I mean? It's so wonderful. And she says, it's like um, music. You know, when you go into a the cathedral and you hear that heavy organ, you know, da, da, da. It's, it's technically beautiful, but there's something about it that isn't good, ominous in a bad way. So there's this wonderful synesthesia effect that she has. She's comparing uh, a vision, a visual image to a sound image, yeah? That oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives, heavenly hurt. <laughs> But that should be like on her gravestone, I think. It just sums up so much of what she's great at, this paradox, right? Is it good or bad? I don't know. Heavenly hurt it gives. We can find no scar but internal difference where the meanings are. None may teach it any. Tis the seal despair, an imperial affliction sent us of the air. When it comes, the landscape listens. Shadows hold their breath. When it goes, tis like the distance on the look of death. Okay, um, we have uh, nine minutes, and I want to do two things in those nine minutes. I just want to get a letter of hers out on record here. Maybe I want, I want to inspire people to go read her letters. So I'm just going to read this letter, and I don't know, I'll ask you to comment. I mean, you don't have to comment. This is totally impromptu. You slightly unfair because you didn't see this in advance. This is a, to a man named Thomas Higginson. Um, I say more about this in the writing prompt of the podcast, I think, but he's an editor and uh, this kind of literary guy that she falls into correspondence with. And she, you know, sends him poems back and forth. He, poor guy, has no idea the genius that he's corresponding with and kind of gives her this patronizing advice, you know, oh, maybe you should like punctuate, you know. <laughs> anyway, this is a letter to him. So she writes, your kindness claimed earlier gratitude. Just, I mean, so this is like 1862. And if you read letters from 1862, not everybody talked like this. You know, you could, you, you've read letters, you know, you're both LDS. You're big into church history. And, and they spoke in a very familiar way uh, as we do now to each other. Um, something was different about Emily Dickinson. Something was different. This is what she says. Your kindness claimed earlier gratitude. I guess that means... Sorry for the late reply, but I was ill and write today from my pillow. Thank you for the surgery. It was not so painful as I supposed. I bring you others as you ask, though they might not differ. This must mean, thank you for critiquing my poems. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> the, the surgery, wow. While my thought is undressed, I can make the distinction, but when I put them in the gown, they look alike and numb. She's writing a poem, I guess. She's forgotten that she's writing a letter. She's begun writing a poem. You ask how old I was. I made no verse but one or two until this winter, sir. <laughs> Why am I laughing? It's not an answer to his question. It's wonderfully evasive, yeah. I had a terror since September. I could tell to none. And so I sing as the boy does by the burning ground, by the burying ground, because I am afraid. You inquire my books. For poets, I have Keats and Mr. and Mrs. Browning. For prose, Mr. Ruskin, Sir Thomas Brown, 
and the revelations. I went to school, but in your manner of the phrase, had no education. When a little girl, I had a friend who taught me immortality, but venturing too near himself, he never returned. Wow. What does that mean? This, she had a, this was her grief, maybe. She had a friend who died, I don't know, when they were kids. He never returned. Soon after, my tutor died, and for several years, my lexicon, this means her dictionary, was my only companion. So sorry, I know what I'm doing now is highly annoying. My friend, my, the dictionary was my only friend. It's kind of sad, but it paid off, you know. Then I found one more, but he was not contented I be his scholar, so he left the land. You ask of my companions. It's like, dear Emily, do you have friends? You ask of my companions. Hills, sir, and the sundown, and a dog, large as myself, that my father bought me. They are better than beings because they know, but do not tell. And the noise in the pool at noon excels my piano. I have a brother and sister. My mother does not care for thought, and father, too busy with his briefs to notice what we do. He buys me many books, but begs me not to read them because he fears they joggle the mind. <laughs> I love that so much. Kind of kind of best dad in the year award, I want to say. Like, here are more books, Emily, but please don't read them. I beg you not to read them. So he's generous, but I don't know, weirdly patronizing. They boggle the mind. They, so her family, they are religious except me and address an eclipse every morning whom they call their, and this is in quotation marks, whom they call their father. Wow. So remarkable. I find that so remarkable. But I fear my story fatigues you. I would like to learn. Could you tell me how to grow? Or is it unconveyed like melody or witchcraft? Dear Mr. Higginson, how do I become a poet? Um, I think it is unconveyed. I don't know. You speak of Mr. Whitman. I never read his book. This is Walt Whitman, but was told that he was disgraceful. <laughs> anyway, thoughts, reactions? I think she's kind of, maybe, I think she knows her own worth, but she's like trying to preserve this correspondence because she's like, I know, I don't know everything. And he has things that he needs to tell me that I need. I, I need his knowledge. And this is the one way I'm going to get it. And so I feel like she's trying to demonstrate her skill. And like, even though it's not a poem, there is music, there is rhythm. Oh yeah. To her words, you know, and she's trying, and she's connecting all these ideas, and and she's, I mean, the capitalization of the the burying ground and the companion hills. She's yeah. like, I can do this personification stuff. I'm not. This is not my first rodeo. Yeah. You know. So I, I've not that she's trying to prove herself, but she's trying to demonstrate her skill. She is being. There is a kind of performance here, though. Like, you asked how old I was. I made no verse but one or two until this winter. She knows that's not an answer to his question. So she's being intentionally something. Yeah, I don't know. Thoughts, Niels? I think you can tell so much from a person by the way they write. And this, if this letter doesn't scream how much of a mind she has, I don't know what does. I think yeah. it's amazing how... Uh, I mean, the word that comes to mind is kaleidoscopic. Just she takes these things and 
rearranges them and moves them and twists them and plays with them and so much mischievousness it's it's hilarious to read and it's just obviously that she is brilliant in so many ways i i i for one know that i can only write poetry when i'm perfectly in, ingrained and looking at it and focused on it and she's doing this with her letters to mr higginson her editor i wish yeah. i i mean i wish i could send text messages with her level of poetic <laughs> skill but i obviously can't it's just amazing and it's brilliant and the humility too like one more thing i want to say is that like she she does know her own worth she's being herself she's not trying to pretend that she's someone she's not but she one of the greatest poets to ever have lived doesn't know always how to write poetry I find that immensely consoling. I'm very sorry. Can I make you guys two minutes late? Because I want to do I want to do one more thing. Let's summarize out loud a list of what because she's a very hard poet to quote unquote imitate. Her style is so idiosyncratic. I don't want anybody to attempt to sound exactly like her. I'm I'm one of those people that believes that we we learn how to write by imitating our favorite writers. She's in lots of ways unimitatable, but there are many aspects of her work that we can just kind of that can teach us how to write poetry. So I want to take 30 seconds to list them in summary of what we've already talked about and then show you a 21st century poem that does these things. So help me out. Um, subversion. Honesty. Honesty. Integrity. integrity surprising. Writing. Yeah, surprising. Surprise. Writing from experience. Write from experience. Be sincere to emotion. Write about big things, death, God, fear, pain. A musical tone that's discorded and disjointed. Excellent. Musical tone that's discorded and disjointed. Excellently said. Lots of so tethering abstractions to particular concrete things. I love the word kaleidoscopic. You said that about her letter needles, but her poems certainly too. They go there, mm -hmm. they go here, you know. Okay, that's we could probably add more, but we're, we are running out of time. Share screen again. Look at this poem by this uh, American poet living named K. Ryan. Do you see this? It's called Blanger. And I think you'll see that it ticks every box. So I'm just going to read this and then let you go. Google Blanger K. Ryan. And you'll see that Emily Dickinson can teach you how to write poetry. I promise. Blanger. If it please God, let less happen. Can't you already hear Dickinson? Slightly cheeky, slightly subversive, talking about God, you know. If it please God, let less happen. Even out Earth's ronger, flatten Iger, blanden the Grand Canyon, make valleys slightly higher, widen fissures to arable land, remand your terrible glaciers and silence their calving, having or doubling all geographical features toward the mean. Unlean against our hearts withdraw your grandeur from these parts. And another thing we didn't add to the list is the compactness. So all of the, the, the kaleidoscopic array is set in these tiny little poems, tiny, tiny little boxes. Great poem, right? Yes. So you can't tell me Kay Ryan is not reading Dickinson. She absolutely is. There's no poet too old or too weird that can't teach us how to write poetry. Sorry to keep you late. Last comments, last questions. <clears throat> Nope. No. So glad that we had this. I like I like conversation. I do too. No, this, has been, this has been so helpful. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Have a good day. Bye. 
So the writing prompt for today is designed to help you focus on compression in poetry. That's one of the things that poetry as a genre, I think, emphasizes more than other genres. Not all poetry is condensed or short, but certainly much of it is. And certainly Emily Dickinson's is. As you heard in that conversation, Emily Dickinson is a master of many things. Shocking metaphors and images, rhyme, internal rhyme, alliteration, personification, really vivid and dynamic active verbs, combining large theological or philosophical or metaphysical ideas with very small, domestic, mundane, natural observations. And she does all of this in some of the smallest poems around. So for this writing prompt, I want you to just attempt a little draft. Again, the finished product here might take weeks and months of revising. So the goal at first will only be to sketch out some ideas or some lines or some words. But I want you to attempt something Dickinson-esque in which using only as many words as could fit, for example, on a postcard, or maybe, you know, to make this extra modern, as many words as would fit in a tweet or two. I want you to do at least four or five of these things that Dickinson does. Use shocking metaphors and images, use lots of internal or end rhymes, use personification, focus on active and dynamic verbs, and focus on combining a large idea with a very mundane and minute and microscopic observation about a leaf or a moth or a bird or some lace or a stone or something like this. Try to write a poem about God or death or beauty or faith or doubt that takes as its impetus that small little object and does all these other things too and can fit on the back of a postcard. Wow, this could be the most ambitious writing prompt yet. Despite Dickinson's highly idiosyncratic style, you can actually find many, many poets these days who have clearly been influenced by her. One of the clearest signs of influence, I think, can be found in the work of the poet Kay Ryan. And almost at random, you can pick some of her poems, and they do all of the things that I ask you to do in that writing prompt. For example, here's a poem that I'd like to read as the poem of the day by Kay Ryan. It's called Shark's Teeth. And I think that you will notice how Dickinson-esque much of this is. Shark's Teeth. Everything contains some silence. Noise gets its zest from the small shark's tooth-shaped fragments of rest angled in. An hour of city holds maybe a minute of these remnants of a time when silence reigned, compact and dangerous as a shark. Sometimes a bit of a tail or fin can still be sensed in parks. That's it for today. There will be more recordings coming out, not necessarily for this class. We've come to the end of the reading unit of this class and the beginning of our writing and workshop intensive unit. But don't stop reading, don't stop writing, and don't ever forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. Mm-hmm.